Hello and welcome from UNICEF Office of Research in Ocenti and welcome as well to all our hundreds of participants across the globe. I'm your host Sarah Crow, and this is the seventh Leading Minds Online, what the experts say on COVID and child health. Today we're going to be looking at uh, what the UN Secretary General said this week, we passed an agonizing milestone as the mind-numbing figure of one million deaths and more than 33 million infections was crossed. The true number could be far higher as much of this disease remains a mystery. When it comes to children, their infection rate, their immunity, and indeed what is happening to their general health because of COVID, even less is known. We hope to change some of that today with our excellent group of experts who will take us through the known unknowns of the pandemic and indeed the infodemic and its impact on children and mothers. So here to join us today, let me introduce you to all of them. Our panelists are live from different corners of the world, starting first in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Dr. Raj Tajuddin from CDC Africa, Center for, Control, for Disease Control. Hello. From Hello. Just outside Geneva is Dr. David Navarro, Special Envoy on COVID for WHO, for the World Health Organization. Welcome, David. And from London, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Professor Heidi Larson, anthropologist and expert on vaccine hesitancy. Welcome, Heidi. And finally, joining us from New York, in uh, UNICEF headquarters in New York, is Lue Pearson, Chief of Health. I'm going to be speaking to them all in a minute, and my colleague, David Anthony, will be taking a deep dive into some of the solutions. David. Thanks, Sarah, and welcome to all. I will be looking at the questions coming in from the audience in about 35 minutes, and then we'll go on to a poll, which you'll be able to complete in a short break. And then we'll go into the solutions section, where we'll be trying to pin down some of our expert panelists on some actions and policy. Back to you, Sarah. Thanks, David. The trends in medical history tend to be that children, pregnant women, nursing mothers are often the worst hit in a disease outbreak. They're usually the most vulnerable, the first to get sick, the first to get a vaccine. COVID-19, though, has been kinder to children, but it's also pushed children to the shadows. It's barred them from school, barred them from play, and more critically, even barred them from health clinics and routine health services when they were grinding to a halt during lockdowns. Numbers of pregnant women seeing a birth attendant have dropped. Adolescents have seemed invisible, even invincible. But that's been changing as more and more young people have become infected. Latest data from the United States shows that children make up now 10% of the overall figure as opposed to 2% in April. Uh, we see more data coming in from India just today. Fortunately, though, most children are not getting sick. But as health experts tell us, the pandemic is just at the very beginning. What lies ahead now for the health of children and young people? many questions and so little time. And the first one up is to all our panelists now to answer please in really short 30-40 seconds. What has changed your thinking about children and COVID over the past six months? Uh, we're going to start first with Professor Heidi Larson, then to Lue Pearson, Dr. Nabarro and Dr. Tanjudin. First to you, Heidi. Thanks, Sarah. I think one of the things you pointed out in the beginning was actually the most crucial bit, and it's all the other things that have um, affected children. I mean, not being able to socialize, go to school, uh, play outside. Um, also, uh, the, the whole learning environment has been quite 
stressful with parents trying to work from home. Um, but I think also, as you pointed out, we're still learning um, about the longer term impacts of COVID. The, there were some particular shock syndromes that some children were having that were tied to COVID. So I think we shouldn't um, take it lightly. Uh, and, uh, but particularly, it's important to get back some level of normality in their lives and get some of the basic things that are, are more certain, like normal vaccines. Right. Uh, Louis Pearson, your thoughts, Louis? What's changed? The initial modeling exercises done have been proving quite different with real-time data monitoring, where UNICEF is working in over 100 countries to look at the real-time coverage or changes of immunization, skilled birth attendant, newborn care, pneumonia treatment, and, the, and the, all the tracer indica uh, indicators. The modeling and the real-time information is quite different, and we need to talk to countries country by country, analyze the information, take action. Thank you, Louie. We'll get back to that. Dr. Nabarro, what has changed your thinking over the past six months when it comes to children? Thanks. Uh, I think it's really important for me and everybody else not to forget that uh, COVID has rather a particular effect on children. It's been a particularly tough six months not the same in all households. Some have had a tremendous reduction in income, in nutritious food. Parenting patterns have changed. Schooling patterns have changed. So I'm reminding myself, this is super tough for children, especially because you just can't repeat what has been lost. You have to take account of it. Right. Dr. Tajuddin, your thoughts on what's changed over the past six months for children? No, thank you, thank you, um, Sarah, and thank you for the opportunity to be part of this. So, as um, Nabarro, um, Eddie, and Eloy have all um, said, as far as kids are concerned, it seems as if they tend to run a mild and um, asymptomatic cause. But when you look at the non-COVID um, issues, they are much, much more severely affected. When you look at nutritional issues, for instance, you will agree with me that quite a lot of children in the developing world, the only opportunity for them to have a nutritious meal is when they go to school. This has been severely affected. When you look at the routine immunization, close to 80 million of children, largely in the developing world, we miss out on this routine life-saving immunization. When you look at poverty, most of their parents have been driven into poverty. Go to sexual and reproductive health issues. Quite a lot of teenage pregnancies are coming up. So the list continues like that. So a lot of things are actually, I mean, especially non-COVID issues, the children are actually going to actually have it um, much more tougher than any other um, aspect of our population. Over. Thank you, Dr. Tajuddin. Uh, we're now going to get a little bit deeper into these issues. And, uh, and I have to say that we brought some of these questions from the audience. Uh, in advance. So these are kind of crowdsourced, if you like. So let me start first now with you, uh, Dr. David Nabarro. You famously said that we are only at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, as I said earlier. Yet there seems to be great expectations that a vaccine is on its way and it will all magically disappear. Is that the case? And are children unlikely to be the first to get the vaccine even when it comes? Even maybe the last, among the last? Thanks, Sarah. Hello, everybody. The last time was a bit short, 40 seconds. So this is my moment to say to you, Sarah, to uh, UNICEF, and of course, to fellow panelists, it's actually a very important moment. It's very important to be here with you all. Yeah, I have said that I think this virus is just starting its journey across our world. And that's because I can't actually see it going any other way. Just let's think back three or four decades when another new virus appeared, HIV, that causes AIDS. Yeah, I think at the beginning there were some who thought perhaps this virus will just come, cause a bit of trouble and disappear. But I think most of those who understand about viruses were saying, nope, 
this is a virus that's arrived, it's an emerging virus, and it's part of the ecosystem in which humanity is going to exist for the foreseeable future. So it's the same with this novel coronavirus, NCOV2, that appeared at the end of December. It's here to stay. Now, it's also actually infecting more and more people. You just look at the total numbers, they're going up. And uh, the levels of asymptomatic infection still seem to be relatively low. I think uh, our other colleagues know more about it than I do. So I'm basically saying there are a lot of people still to be infected all over our world. This virus is particularly unpleasant in that it's very easily transmissible. It does have health consequences, not just killing people, but also a long and nasty illness for at least one in 20 of those who get it. And as Heidi has just said, we learn about it all the time. It's new. So I'm basically saying this virus is just starting its journey. Now, we don't have vaccines against many viral diseases. We've only, to my knowledge, successfully eradicated one viral disease, that's smallpox. We've got a vaccine against measles. We've got a vaccine against other childhood illnesses, but these diseases have not been eradicated because it really is quite challenging both to get the vaccine works and then to get it to everybody. So I'm just saying to people, it's, it's easy to talk about having a vaccine. It's quite a different thing to have it and then make sure everybody gets it. So taking my cue from colleagues in WHO, I'm saying, don't imagine that somehow a vaccine is going to come along and poof, all our problems are gone. I think a vaccine will be part of the variety of activities that have to take place in all societies for people to be able to hold the virus at bay and prevent themselves from being caught by it and infected by it. You, so no silver bullet, quite clearly. But what about children, uh, Dr. Navarro? There's, there are no trials for a childhood of paediatric uh, trial, are there, or for vac vaccines? I personally am not able to stay with any certainty whether children will be in the queue for the vaccine when it eventually arrives or not. And that's because we are nowhere near a point where anybody can make any, I believe, a verifiable statement about whether or not we have any vaccine against this virus. So I just hold, hold on that. We, we don't have a vaccine. We've got a really good global program to try to make sure that when the vaccine comes, it will go to people who need it the most. But I'm not able at, at, at to make any comment about who might be uh, at the front of the queue in society. And I, I just think it's too early for that, Sarah. Right, so remain COVID ready. That's your message, isn't it? Here to stay. Yeah, sobering message. But when it comes to children again, it's something of a mystery as to how they seem to have had a different immune response so far, although the jury's out on that and we're seeing more and more studies showing that in fact they are being in, infected in greater numbers, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but what does it mean for them, for children and young people going about their everyday lives, they're returning to school, socializing, uh, and having a somewhat normal life, if they are responding to this virus differently? Well, I, I think the first thing is that um, colleagues are saying, let's think about the child herself or himself. Let's think about the people in the school environment where the child might be. Let's think also about the, the, the relatives at home when the child goes home and perhaps look at these three situations quite carefully. Uh, there was for a long time a question about whether or not children actually, uh, when they're exposed to this virus, whether they also have a viral load when they're infected and whether they can infect others. And some were saying, well, perhaps the virus doesn't actually 
land inside the respiratory cells of a child. I think that studies that have been undertaken in the last few months have actually made it clear that children are infected, but they're less likely than older adults to get really ill. So that's quite a challenging thing for parents because their, their, their children might actually be carrying the virus and it's not clear whether or not uh, they will show signs of carrying the virus. And each day, you know, we see new things, Sarah, that are coming through. And there's a, a very recent paper, beautiful paper that I've just look, looked at in Science. It's a medical journal that's uh, studied the degree to which children might be able to take the virus into their families and infect others. And because in India, there's been some really excellent contact tracing, uh, this joint team of researchers led by an Indian team has said, well, actually, according to their data, children are able, even though they don't show signs of the disease, they're able to take the virus into their homes. And, and we really need to take note of that. There were questions about that before, but I think this is such a huge study and so carefully done. I think it is changing our understanding. So in conclusion, in my experience, children can get infected. In my experience, children can take that virus into other settings. In my experience, schools are places where the virus is circulated. And in my experience, that means that the potential for children to infect others has to be taken seriously it doesn't mean every time you get a child with covid you close the school i think we're all learning that just as with factories and with uh, residential care homes you can actually establish ways to contain the infection prevent clusters from building up and keep the institution open and just to complete this that's why what i'm saying in my exchanges with everybody hey we're learning to live with this virus we're learning to be able to run our lives and to make sure children are educated despite the fact that the virus is in our vicinity. We're not going to let this virus stop everything. We don't need to go back into lockdown that we affected more than half the world's population two months ago. Instead, the pathway ahead is one of humanity working out what it takes hold the virus back and keep it at bay, keep ourselves as healthy as possible, and to protect those who are most vulnerable. UNICEF and WHO did a really incredible piece of work. Uh, they had an expert group that met three times in the summer to come out with guidance that was the best guidance of, that was available on children and COVID. And I hope that during this seminar, we'll have a chance to look at the very specific guidance that came out in there that I believe helps parents when they're making really tricky choices about their own children and school. And one last comment, no household situation is the same. Everybody's home has unique characteristics. I get letters and emails from parents really concerned, for example, that they've got elderly relatives or disabled relatives or special needs people in the home, and they're super worried that if the child goes to school, the child might bring the COVID back into the home and the parent would not know because the child would not have any symptoms. All I want to say, having heard these kinds of accounts, is yup, there aren't easy solutions to many of the dilemmas that parents face, that those who are counseling parents face. And I think we just have to be really honest about that. I can't sit here and offer nice, neat, clipped answers that will be relevant to every mother or father. And because obviously in my own family, there are parents with children, some very young, my grandchildren. I'm super conscious of this, 
and I'm, I'm not going to be able to offer, at least from my perspective, really firm answers on the kind of issues that are troubling people right now. And that's just the way it is, I fear. And it's just changing so incredibly fast, isn't it? I mean, the study that you referred to was just out today from India, uh, showing that children are more likely to become infected than was once known, uh, but that life must go on. And of course, there was good news again this week on the, on the swab test uh, that seems to be like a very quick pregnancy test. Uh, what, are the, what, what, what are your hopes for that? So, again, just talking to everybody, um, you need really to know who's got the virus. Because if you're trying to create a situation in which people can avoid being caught by this virus, you, you've got to know, is the virus building up in a particular part of my city or my town? And the tests that we've got at the moment that use a, a particularly complex chemical reaction called PCR, these tests are quite tough to set up. You need a sophisticated laboratory where you've got somebody who's experienced in doing a multi-phase test with possibly about 70 steps in it. Or you need to have quite well-developed machines into which you put trays of samples. But some of these machines, they're super machines, they take several months to set up. Either way, suddenly, bumping up the numbers of tests to the sort of numbers that are necessary when dealing with a situation where the virus is in most countries in the world is immensely difficult. So there's been quite a lot of action to try to find new and quick tests that would tell you very quickly whether or not somebody has got the virus. And one test that's, that's really attractive involves taking saliva, or if you can't get good saliva, something from up the nose or in the throat, and then subjecting it to a quick process that gives you an answer within a matter of minutes. Gosh, won't that be brilliant? Because we've got stories from all over the world, in poor countries and rich countries, of huge, huge backlogs of samples and people waiting for one week, perhaps two weeks, the results of their tests and that makes life really difficult. So there have been two new tests developed and are now, now approved recently through a thing called the ACT Accelerator, the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator, by a group that is specifically focusing on finding new diagnostic tests. They are called antigen tests. They're not actually measuring whole virus, but they're measuring bits of virus and there's going to be quite a lot of these coming available in the coming six months. 120 million doses have been bought by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation from the manufacturers. And actually, it's not me who should be talking about this because one of our panelists is in one of the organizations that's right at the center of this. That's the African Center for Disease Control. Now, I can't say at this stage whether they'll be specially available for children, but I want billions of rapid tests to be available all over our world because it would be so helpful if you could rapid test kids in schools, putting a little stick onto the saliva and then seeing whether or not the color comes up. That would be so much better than the situation we have at the moment and it would make a huge difference. So you're talking to somebody here who believes that rapid tests that can be done on the spot, give a quick answer, a reliable and a non-invasive, would be an absolute game changer for all parents when they're in doubt as to whether or not their kids should go to school and what they should do with them at home. Thank you, Dr. Nabara. And you mentioned, of course, CDC. And we're going to turn now to CDC, Africa CDC, uh, and to get a little bit more, because we've also heard about a new test coming out of Nigeria uh, this week, another swab type of test. So we need lots of game changes in, uh, in the pandemic. Over to you, Dr. Raj, Raji Tajuddin. 
tell us, you've had the rates of infection in Africa have been surprisingly low and have confounded uh, a lot of experts and epidemiologists, I suppose just in a bit like the, the rates of children's, uh, children's rate of infection. And many were expecting the worst in Africa. Uh, what are the predominant theories that you'll come that are coming out of Africa at the moment, particularly when it comes to children? Why has Africa been spared, or is it definitely too early to tell? All right, thank you, um, Sarah. And um, let me start by saying that um, yeah, what we're currently seeing, as far as the continent is concerned now. Not only that, we just are on five percent of the global total of the COVID-19 cases. We are we are also seeing a kind of downward um, trend as far as our epidemic and cough is concerned. Sometimes in um, late um, July, the continent was recording around one hundred and twenty thousand cases per week. Today we are looking at around fifty to sixty thousand cases per week. So meaning that we're actually on the downward um, trend. Now, the explanation for this, uh, for me, I think, uh, for Africa CDC, I may want to go with you that it may be a bit too um, early to tell, you know, because for us to clearly answer that, I mean, to be able to say whether, yeah, what we are seeing is exactly the true picture, we need to ask ourselves certain questions. One is um, what proportion of Africa today actually truly asymptomatic, as um, David had mentioned. It's also very, very important to know the more than 35,000 cases of death. You know, the COVID-19 cases actually died on the continent. Who are they? Where are they from? Again, we also need to understand what sort of strain is circulating now on the continent as against what is circulating in um, Europe, in um, America, be it the North or the Southern um, America. So all these questions need to be answered for us to be able to see what exactly is the true picture of, um, what exactly is the true cause of our downward or the low cases on the continent. But having said that, there are certain explanations that people have put forward, but the only issue here is that yet to be validated by data. You know, One is the fact that uh, when you look at our age profile on the continent, relatively, we are quite um, young. We are looking at average of average age of 18 to 20 as against around 45, 50 in Europe. And we all know that um, as far as COVID-19 is concerned, for most young people, even if they are infected, they are asymptomatic. So again, what is the testing protocol on the continent? Two, the climatic condition. We know that a lot of, um, um, a lot of studies in control settings you know, have shown that the higher the temperature, the higher the humidity, the lower the virulence or the pathogenicity of the SARS-CoV-2, that's the causative agents of the COVID-19. But again, this is control setting. So that may also possibly explain what is happening on the continent, but we need data to support um, that. The issue of cross-protection has also come up strongly. People have said that possibly the prior exposure of our population to the different um, strains of um, coronavirus that are not as deadly as the SARS-CoV-2, you know, may actually explain why we are not um, that um, affected in terms of um, either fertility or morbidity on the continent. Again, we need data to prove um, that. People have also looked at um, the connectivity in terms of trade, in terms of business, in terms of tourism between Africa and the developed um, world or other uh, part of the continent. When you look at um, the, the, the air travel uh, map, you discover that um, in terms of um, air traffic, the, 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 the continent, that's our continent, Africa, is a little bit um, sparse in terms of uh, distribution. And again, even when you look at distribution of our population, we are largely rural, you know, and COVID-19 has actually impacted those heavily, I mean, a dense um, population. So we have only a few settings like that as far as um, the continent is um, um, concerned. Last but not the least for me on this is um, we, the, 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 the issue of um, virulence or the issue of um, the kind of um, genome that is um, circulating on the continent, the issue of mutation also is something that people are looking at. Because we know that generally for viral infection, when it moves from one population to the other, is that losing its virulence or is gaining virulence? 
So what exactly are we seeing on the continent? And in this regard, Africa CDC has put in place a network of pathogen genomic sequence, you know, to actually look at genomic surveillance as far as this COVID-19 is concerned, so that we understand what exactly is happening as far as the genome that is circulating on the continent is um, concerned. So I will leave it there. Over. Thank, thank you, Dr. Tajuddin. You mentioned uh, the need for data, and that, that's very clear everywhere, but particularly, of course, in Africa. CDC Africa did recently do a survey of six countries on child infections. Uh, can you talk us through the rates and the findings there? What did you come across, uh, and how representative do you think those findings were for other countries? All right, um, thank you so much, um, Sarah. So as part of the coordination mechanism that Africa CDC has put in place for the continent, every Tuesday we have a member state sharing um, data as far as the COVID-19 situation is concerned. So I, I, I try to look at that data from a couple of um, um, uh, countries spread across um, the continent. In fact, each of the five um, geographical region of the continent is um, represented. So what we're seeing is that children actually constitute between four to 5.5% of the total COVID-19 cases on the continent, which is in sharp contrast to what we're seeing from um, US or Europe, where we have around 10% of the um, infection. So whether this is um, representative or not, I think to me it is because um, we have um, countries from the all the five regions that have actually come forward with this um, data. But what is not clear is that we know that this is a very dynamic situation. As uh, David rightly mentioned in his, in his presentation, at the outset, we were seeing around 2 to 3% of cases in children from Europe and from America. Today, we are seeing 10%. So as our economy begin to open up, our schools and other educational settings are beginning to open up. So most likely, this data will surely change. But in what, which direction, we don't know. You know, but today what we are seeing is um, a, a range of um, four to five percent as far as COVID-19 infection in children on the continent is concerned. Over. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Raj. You, you were very, very directly involved, of course, in the Ebola epidemic in West Africa and specifically in your own country, Nigeria, which successfully halted a really serious outbreak through contact tracing and really quite an extraordinary story back in 2014. Uh, what, do you, what have you learned from that period and also with the coordination that West Africa in particular undertook uh, from measles outbreak, polio in, in Nigeria, cholera and other viruses that you've been able to apply now to this situation uh, and that Africa in a, in a way can, can show other countries because of the exposure to other diseases in the past? Uh, thank you, Sarah, for that um, question. I think um, one of the other reasons people have put forward as why um, uh, Africa has done well or why the cases in Africa is a little bit um, low is the fact that Africa has gained a lot of experience from repeated epidemic outbreak on the continent, especially the Ebola outbreak of West Africa from 2014 to 2016. Now, going directly to your question, one key lesson that we learn in West Africa and that's allow us to respond appropriately and efficiently to this COVID-19 pandemic as a continent is that of coordination. Today, we have a continental coordination that has enjoyed all the political support you can think of. So this, uh, this, this outbreak or this uh, coordination is coming right from the top um, level of our um, head of state. We have, um, under the leadership of President Siri Ramaphosa, different coordination mechanism has been put in place, starting from um, political um, support, advocacy, medical supply, resource mobilization, and so on and so forth. We also have a coordination at the ministerial level, you know, that's also look, providing the necessary oversight as far as our continental-wide um, strategy and tax force is concerned. At the level of the technical uh, people like me and um, others, we also have a coordination mechanism at that level. So coordination is one key thing. Number two is the issue of community engagement. If there's anything that did not work properly in West Africa or that we failed to do or do in time, 
is that of community um, engagement. And David will uh, actually um, support me on this because it was part and parcel of that response in West Africa. It took us time to realize that the community engagement should be a key pillar as far as a pandemic or epidemic response is concerned. This time around, we got it right, right from outset. We ensure that the community continue to be part and parcel of what we do. In fact, there is a specific technical working group that is um, actually looking at that. Number three, the need to continue to run and maintain routine healthcare services was also very, very key. In West Africa in 2016, about 11,500 people died from the Ebola, much more than that number actually died from other um, endemic diseases. This time around, we said no history will not repeat itself. So right from outside, we work with WHO to ensure that a guideline has been put in place that will make each and every member state to continue as much as possible to run these uh, routine health services. Things like malaria, TB, HIV, AIDS, and so on and so forth, measles, cholera, we cannot afford to take a break from this. Issue of routine childhood immunization, we cannot afford to take a, a break from this. We need to ensure that all these services continue to run. As um, Eddie said, a lot of forecast, a lot of projection, you know, actually as predicted that where you interrupt any of these services, it will take us back to years. It will erase decade of progress that has been made. So the issue of routine health services, we need to continue this. Number four, the role of private sector, very, very important. And this is one thing we have been able to do as Africa CDC. Today, that digital platform, the African Medical Supply Platform, that's ensured that our member state, irrespective of the ability to pay, continue to have access to the medical supplies, be it PPE, be it test kits, be it a ventilator, and so on and so forth. It's courtesy of the private sector through their engagement with the um, head of state and government of the continent. We have been able to put this in place and we have been able to mobilize the development bank on the continent to ensure that those fragile and the vulnerable member states continue to receive these um, um, supplies despite the fact that they may not be able to pay as um, one um, deem, um, fit. The number five is the issue of whole of society approach. We need to ensure that this is not about medicalization of health. This is about bringing everybody on board and ensuring that each and every one has a role to play. Each and every sector, be it transport, economic, education, uh, information technology, you know, to bring everybody on board. So these are some of the lessons we learned in West Africa, and these has shaped the way we respond as a continent over. Thank you very much. And some of those, some of those unique lessons that, of course, countries within Europe and North America and other, other parts of the world have not had. Uh, turning now to another of your, your colleagues, Professor Heidi Larson, uh, you're an expert on vaccine hesitancy and vaccine confidence. And we spoke about, you heard earlier from uh, Dr. Navarro about we can't have the silver bullet approach with a vaccine. And besides, it's going to cost a fortune. The Secretary General of the UN has estimated just today, I think, 35 billion dollars. So even when it comes to a vaccine, it's unlikely to be a magic potion. Do you fear, though, that this pandemic fatigue might be eating into some of the behavioral changes uh, that you need, that we need to carry on, mask wearing, and so on, uh, before a vaccine actually comes about? Heidi. Over to you, Heidi. Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> um, I think the fatigue is actually around the mask wearing, the social distancing. I think it's more on the control measures um, uh, that that is really wearing people down, the isolation. Um, I think at the end of the day, the vaccine hesitancy issue is really, I, I often say it's not a misinformation problem, it's a relationship problem. It's about trust. Um, and I think uh, in this context, people, we are in a hyper uncertain environment. Uh, 
people are not sure. Um, they're finding that the guidance from uh, government sometimes, depends on where you live, is quite confusing. Sometimes it changes. Um, but it's. I think this is a huge opportunity for us to be building building trust and and that trust environment is going to be crucial when it comes to building confidence in a vaccine when and if we get one um i, I just uh, picking up on uh what dr taji was saying um the whole of society approach um and that people i, I think particularly the point that people need to know their role. I think that's been part of the fatigue is people, they wanna know what specifically they should be doing, what other people are doing. It seems like, you know, the rules are changing and that is crucial. I'll never forget um, in my role leading the social mobilization engagement around the rights of the child across the South Pacific. I remember seeing, you know, when there was a funeral in the South Pacific, you would have a whole, a whole, island, a whole community um, in remote areas, self-organize in, in 24 hours, a major network of uh, organization around a funeral. At the same time, you know, you'd see a health center falling apart right next to a church being built overnight. Um, and I remember sitting with the community once and saying, what is it about the funeral that gets you so mobilized and engaged versus your health center, which, you know, could even, it looks like it's falling apart. Um, they said, you know, Dr. Heidi, we all know what to do when somebody dies. We're not sure what to do around this particular health intervention. And that has stuck with me throughout, uh, even in working in a lot of the Ebola community engagement. We my, my group worked on community engagement, trust building, rumor management in Ebola trials and rollout in Sierra Leone, DRC, Rwanda, and Uganda. And the power of conversation and engagement and, uh, was, was really crucial. And it's, it's going to be fundamental to um, the environment we create. We have time with uh, ahead before we have a vaccine. We need to be building those conversations, making sure that people, their other health needs are being met in the meanwhile. And that importance of building trust, I want to pick up on, and also the, the, the integration of the health messages, because that's what you learned so much from, from polio, and particularly in the endemic countries of uh, earlier when Nigeria uh, was part of the endemic countries, but also in South Asia, Pakistan, and, and Afghanistan, building that trust. But now we're dealing with an infodemic, uh, an infodemic, uh, and particularly this sort of sense of the conspiracy theories, the fake news. How do you counteract all of that uh, by building building that trust? How do you do that when you're when you're up against social media? And you know, how do you help children and young people get the real facts around COVID and not be drawn away, uh, drawn down a conspiracy path? Well, I think the only, we have to step back and look at, um, I mean, I look at misinformation as a symptom, not a cause. Um, people wouldn't be believing some of the things that are swirling around if they had confidence in um, the, the uh, authorities. They had an, another story that they felt like they, there, there's a, a blank slate there. We're leaving the space open for conspiracy. And I think that, again, there's an inverse relationship between trust and, and risk. So if people, if you really, if you trust your doctor, you trust your local teacher or health worker, you'll, you'll put up with a bit of risk. If you don't trust, you're going to be gobbling up the kind of uh, alternative stories and, and conspiracies. And I just, it just came coming out this month stuck I wrote a book um, specifically on this, inspired by my years in UNICEF in the field, and it's on how vaccine rumors start and why they don't go away. And it's not unlike what David was talking about in terms of these rumors and conspiracies. They're not new to COVID. They're going to come and go. They're waiting for an opportunity to thrive in the background. So we need to build a kind of resilience rather than trying to hit 
pieces of information on the head um, look at, you know, dealing with the roots of, of these issues. And I mean, for instance, the rumor that 5G uh, is causing uh, COVID. This is not new. H1N1 was caused by 4G. SARS was caused by 3G. We have sterilization rumors that come and go historically. And, and they're in the background. They're, they're laying there waiting for um, fertile ground of uncertainty. And we're in the thick of the uncertainty. So any way we can build some kind of certainty in people's lives and also the health services are not just about making sure they stay healthy, but showing a gesture that you care, you care. You care about other things besides COVID. You care about, you know, their nutrition. You care about their health. And you care about just, are they okay? Right, right. Thank you very much, Heidi. Uh, we've got very little time left. It's been incredibly rich, and I'm sorry to cut cut you all short we will have a poll uh going to the audience we're going to make the audience experts for a, for a couple of seconds couple of minutes uh but turning now to the chief of health for unicef uh Louis pearson you heard dr nabara speak there about the who and unicef guidelines uh what what is you what are you seeing so far in terms of the secondary impact of the pandemic on children's health and of course on maternal health uh, given the fact we've heard from the other panelists about the primary impact. What are you seeing in the shadows? What is in the shadows is coming into light, actually. The lockdown, the social distancing, physical distancing measures started or reinforced towards the end of March. So in April, we saw a big dip of community and outreach-based services, such as immunization and uh, services rely on mobile teams. It, there's a great deal. Then since May, there are, there's, uh, we have also seen signs of recovery, but the V-shape is different. Immunization services is usually a deeper V. After a drop, then there is a greater catch-up and it's easier. Seems most of the countries are able to catch additional children missed during the lockdown period. But the V-shape is not happening for other services depending on health facilities and health systems, such as skilled birth attendant, treat of, treatment of newborn complications, and the other facility-based services. Interesting, an interesting phenomenon is, country, is that countries are quite reluctant to share real-time information. <laughs> so here I speak to uh, Dr. Raji that how CDC Africa, working with African Union, can make sure all African countries have real-time information to monitor the interruption and the recovery of essential services. And please note, not all the services can be caught up. If you have missed 10 children this month, you can catch them up next month for immunization, but not for home birth, not for pneumonia, severe cases, severe cases of malaria, severe cases of obstetric complications. We missed, uh, missed life forever and are lost to families forever. In, in the chat box, there is a question on gender impact. We looked at some uh, data in India with the sharp drop of newborn care in health facilities. Girls are affected more than newborn boys. Means when families are facing a choice of physical difficulties to travel, economic difficulties pay the payment, they tend to choose treatment or prioritize treatment for boys. And we should look at additional information. Information at country level and actions are really key. We must not have a global picture of lockdown. We must nuance 
situation country by country. In Africa, teachers are young. The average age of teachers in Uganda says between 30 to 35 years. So they are not in the high risk group. But why should we close out the schools if because we are concerned with their health? We need to nuance a lot of an analysis. Thank you, Sarah. You, and UNICEF has a very clear um, advocacy message on that, the importance of keeping, keeping open schools. Uh, and when it comes to governments, how can you, how can governments, you talk about local responses and country responses, how can governments really push this um, commitment to universal health care, to universal health coverage? Especially when you know UNICEF's figure of uh, norm, in a normal year, you've got 5 million children who die a year. We are concerned. We are concerned with the shrinking domestic space that government may be pushed to spend their meager resources or shifting resources away from primary health care, essential health services to curative services and hospital-based services. It's a balance we need to dialogue with the government to find what is the smartest way to use the available domestic resources. In, during the last few months, I feel the notion of global south has also moved. In every country, there are weaknesses. In every de developed country, there is an element of global south. I think they are learning from developing countries where they can do better. I feel we must continue the dialogue among governments so that they can learn from each other, like African CDC and African Union have been doing, to let the government know their lessons and experience, be transparent on what we know and what we don't know, what we're doing well and we're not doing well. I think that is very important. Thank you very much. Louie, and thank you for picking up one of those questions that, that came in. Uh, we'll have more, but we're going to go quickly to a poll to the audience and turn it around, make them the experts. Uh, David, Anthony, over to you now for a little peek, peek uh, view, a, a preview uh, of, the, of the poll. If you could read that out for us, please. Thanks. Uh, what a fascinating discussion. So to our audience, we're going to have a, a question which is going to challenge you and put you almost in the in the shoes of some of the experts who have to make these kind of decisions and others. If you were leading the national COVID response for a government, how would you prioritize your resources to protect children and child and maternal health in the pandemic? Would you A, keep all health facilities open no matter what? B, get better disaggregated data to know how many children were actually catching COVID? C, put more resources into change in behavior, such as mask wearing for children and counteracting fake news? Or D, pursue a vaccine with a pediatric and adult formulation? Uh, so that's our question. You're gonna have uh, a few minutes to answer that. We're gonna go to a short break, and then when we come back, uh, we're also, also gonna go into the solution sections pose some of your questions and really get our panelists to wrap up on what they think are going to be the game changers. Over to you, sir. Yes, thanks. We're going to keep the break really, really short because I know that our panelists are, are very short on time. Uh, so we'll, I think, just go, we'll keep that on the in the background while the audience are voting in uh, their preferences. Uh, and I think we're going to have... Um, one question, David, I think we've got one coming in on the importance of opening health clinics, uh, but let's park that. As soon as we get the um, poll results up, we'll take that question. David, who do you want to take that question? I think there's two questions there. I think there's one with health clinics and there's one that Luwe posed to Rajiv, and also I'd like to post to David about the, the, the better data in real time, how do we get that? How do we get this aggregated data? And maybe to Heidi and Luway on the clinics and how we get services to marginalized folks. I think we now have the poll results. David, why don't you read those out? Okay. Just come in. Okay. Okay, so the poll results are, um, what would you prioritize? And at the top we have 
put more resources into changing behavior uh, with 44%. Second is keep all health facilities open no matter what with 30%. And then we have get better disaggregated data to know about children of 15 and then pursue a vaccine is down at the bottom with 11%. Um, so let's go straight after this to maybe Rajiv and David to ask about data. Data is fundamentally critical for us to understand the situation of children. How do we get better disaggregated data where many countries just either don't have the capacity or simply aren't publishing it? Rajiv. Uh, thank you, David. Um, so uh, let me say that issue of um, data right from um, four years ago when Africa CDC came on board has been um, a top priority for us. And um, unfortunately, we've not been able to make much progress as far as that aspect is um, concerned. We have um, uh, tried to, to address the issue of capacity, you know, try to uh, carry out some capacity building and exercise, targeting our member states. So up to this moment, what is um, coming in, it's, um, it's, it's just not um, what you can use to, to actually, I mean, uh, either drive a policy or inform our practices. So let, let, let me just be, be frank there. So what we currently um, um, doing now, especially using the COVID-19, as an opportunity, because if there's anything we learn in the epidemic is that never you waste um, any opportunity that come with the crisis. So we're working with WHO now and um, still uh, engaging our member states at the political level. You know, let them see um, the reason why um, data is um, key. One, to drive our continental um, strategy. Uh, two, to inform what each and every member state um, is, is doing. And um, three, without um, data, there is no way you'll be able to effectively um, turn around um, this pandemic. Let, let me give you an example. For instance, we are looking at um, how do we safely reopen um, schools on the continent? You know, the best bet here would have been that let's know exactly what is happening to our children as far as this COVID-19 is concerned. Let's do a proper risk assessment so that we'll be able to come up with a strategy, you know, that we address the specific needs as far as our own local context is concerned, you know, and we'll be able to safely reopen our um, school. Up to this moment, it's still um, a lot of um, engagement um, ongoing. So it's, it's, it's a lot of, um, I mean, um, challenge as well that space is um, um, concerned. Oh, Roger, we seem to have lost you. Um, sorry about that. Um, David, maybe the same question. How do we get better data, um, particularly in, in countries with low data capacity? Thank you very much indeed. Um, and I'm super sorry. It's uh, two minutes before my next event, so I shall be brief. Um, as I said before, and I'm going to say it again, it's really hard to stop this virus from catching people, whether it is children or their parents or their grandparents, if you don't know where the virus is. And the only way you know where the virus is, is having some information from test results as to which sections of the population have it and where they have it. And with the current shortage of testing capacity, I'm going to have to say to you, this is very difficult. When I look at the figures, who has COVID around the world, I know that these figures are really just a reflection of who's able to access tests. An awful lot of people can't access tests, and so that means they're missed. So in conclusion, uh, I'm going to have to say that getting the quality of disaggregated data on populations about who's experiencing the disease really depends on having sufficient testing capacity for these sorts of studies to be done. And I think it's good that today we have focused on at least one study of a population that has attempted to work out where the disease is, and there are others coming through but that will be what's required in the long run, is really careful, stratified, as we call it, examinations of populations with a special attention to look at what's happening in children. So I hope that UNICEF colleagues, my last sentence, 
will advocate strongly for this at all times because if you don't call for it, it doesn't come. Gender disaggregated and child disaggregated and wealth disaggregated data have to be asked for. Please do it. Thank you for the chance to be with you. Thank you, David. Thank you for coming and leading minds. Um, Heidi and Luwe, we're going to just have the last question, which is about the service disruptions. How do we get uh, access to healthcare services back in this pandemic for children and, and, and mothers? Heidi, please. Well, I, I'm, I could speak more of getting, I think the community needs to know that uh, it's, it's going to be a coordinate, it needs to be somehow coordinated between the health services and the community because there's a lot of anxiety among family members about access to services. You don't want to build their um, encouragement for it, their expectation of it if you're not ready to deliver it. So I think it, it needs to be a well uh, synchronized, um, but I think you can't. It won't be possible to do everything at once. I think the most important anxiety we've heard in our survey work and in our social media listening um, is that parents and families want to know that it's safe to go to the health center, that they're not going to get sick going to the health center. Um, or that the services are available somewhere else, or that you know maybe some of the vaccines will be given in the school if they're worried about the uh, health services. So keep it, keep the expectation and the reality uh, in sync. Uh, assure parents uh, to the extent that you can assure them that it will be safe, because we've been talking about children um, and the the relatives and the schools. But somebody has to bring children, well, depending on the age, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the travel to and from uh, the schools or the health services, that's the high risk. It's the crowded bus to get there. It's the uh, whatever the, the kind of intensive uh, closeness on the way. So uh, help assure them. And if it's not safe, don't encourage them. But I think that's something that I think a, a, a community dialogue will be important, which you know, so that the health services listen to what the primary concerns are and and help be there for them with that. Thanks so much, Heidi. Louis, same question. What, what what can we do? What must we do? From UNICEF, our message to... <laughs> and from you. <laughs> David, from us, mm -hmm. from UNICEF, our message to the world is clear. Public health is a political choice. And the children should be prioritized and should be protected. Their best interests should be in mind for their health, nutrition, and learning. If we want to put children and the women and the vulnerable families at the center, we need collective actions in the world, and we can do it together with government and partners. We can do it, and we must do it. Thank you, Liu Wei. Thanks to all our partners. Sorry, Reggie, we lost you, but thanks for your participation. And um, over to you, Sarah, for the final words. Thanks, thanks to everyone. An incredibly rich discussion, and we didn't even hit the beginning of some of those uh, some of those really deep dive issues that we should go into further. Public health is a political issue, as uh, Louie Persson has just left us with that very strong message uh, to end off this program. Thank you so much to all those who joined us from around the world, uh, to our distinguished panelists, and please join us again in two weeks' time. Uh, three weeks' time, I should say, on the 22nd of October. Same place, same time, Thursday at 1500 Central European time. For Leading Minds Online, where we look at the climate crisis in the wake of the COVID pandemic, has it been overshadowed by the pandemic? What's happened to Fridays for Future? Global climate activism for young people and children, by young people and children. We look into that. So that's it from today for Child Health. Uh, we've only just started this discussion, so much more going forward, and this pandemic is going to be with us for a long time to come, as you heard from Dr. Navarro. So over and out from the Leading Minds team at UNICEF. Bye.